I really don't even know how to recover from that. So let's just try again. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sandy Asker. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you, Emma. Uh, I will add to that prayer request as Emma and Matt and Steve and Kristen and John Steele and Caitlin Steele and others who work with our college students, I am just reminded that uh, Mankato has some new neighbors. So if you've been driving around, if you've dared brave Target or Walmart or any, any store in town, really, you might notice there are a few more kids in town and there are a few more license plates. I've also been observing just some more out-of-town license plates. So as we consider our neighbors in Rosa Parks, uh, we also just want to say a word of welcome to the college students that are in our midst. So with that, I'm going to talk about high school today. When I graduated from high school, we had all of the seniors like vote for things. Do they still do this, young people? So I was voted my senior year the most likely to speak her mind. <laughs> this is not a surprise, right? Uh, I had a reputation even back then on challenging authority, uh, arguing with the teacher, asking uncomfortable conversations. Disagreeing with teachers, uh, fellow students, really anyone about anything that I believed strongly in, which meant, really, I argued a lot. And I wrote in my notes, just ask my mom. Well, how about you? Maybe not in high school, uh, but think about the last argument or disagreement you had. Perhaps it was with someone very close to you. Perhaps it was a biggie and you haven't reconciled yet, so I'm sorry we're starting off on a really uncomfortable note this morning. Maybe it was silly and about something like dish detergent. Or maybe it was in your head with that person ahead of you or behind you on the way to church. I have a lot of arguments with people that I've never met. Why is it that we fight? What is it about culture these days that sort of feels contentious? And why does it feel like we have to pick sides? feels like that lately. Well, I looked into uh, some people who are smarter than I am, and I hit upon psychology today. And it says that we argue because we are wired to defend territory and to self-protect. I don't know if that's true for everyone, but I know that we fight. And I know the scriptures has something to say about that. And there has to be some way out of it because Jesus encouraged us not to argue and disagree and to be uh, divided, but instead he called us to love. Now, this sermon is going to be directed mostly to those of us who say we follow Jesus. If you do not fall in that category, if you're kind of still on your way or frankly you're just here because somebody wanted you to be here or you're watching this six months from now because you're just curious, that's okay. What I want you to know is that for those of us and you someday, if you choose to follow Jesus, this is the plan. This is the hope. This is the best case scenario. This is the way. Okay? It is love. And a pastoral word here to those of us who are brothers and sisters. There is so much contention and disagreement today. I just don't think the world needs any more. And sometimes we bring more. I think today Jesus can help us get a vision for a better way. So today, for those of us who follow Jesus, we're going to consider how we treat one another. So those of us in the church, fellow believers, James is written, the book that we've been read, reading, 
James is writing to brothers and sisters. That is making the assumption that we are on the same page when it comes to faith. Jesus, his words are echoed in the book of James, Sermon on the Mount. The book of Proverbs is echoed in the book of James. So James is not necessarily like a wild hare. Some people think that when they come to the book of James. Some people back in history didn't even want it in the Bible. James echoes what Jesus, who claimed to be king, words that he challenged us with. So today, James can illustrate really what is hope, a hopeful way for the church. Hope for those of us who are left here on earth trying to muddle through yet another election season, yet another going back to school season, trying to find the pair of shoes that your kid wants, trying to make financial decisions, just trying to deal with difficult people, which really at the end of the day, I think we all can be. James is written to the people who are following Jesus, and they are in a setting where they are tempted to argue with the authorities. Rome has taken over. They've taken away their rights. The Jews are frustrated. There are some people in the church asking, what can we do? And their decision is, I think that if we rise up and we sort of revolt, we rage against the machine, that's the answer. What's happened is there are people in authority who have taken land, property, financial stability from people, and they have stolen it. And then they've told the people told the people who used to own it, now you have to work on my land. Maybe I'll pay you, maybe I won't. There's a lot of oppression in this situation. There's a lot of reason for anger and disagreements and, frankly, violence in their minds. James then tells them that you need to control your tongue, for instance. James says, if you don't have the wisdom to know what to do, just ask. God is generous. He will give you what you want and what you need. He also has this interesting theme in the book of James to the wealthy. This part doesn't always make sense to me because the setting is some Jews are being oppressed by those in authority, but it's clear because James repeatedly talks to those who are wealthy, he's also talking to those people who have means who are in the church. And he says, hey, don't be selfish with your wealth. He's talking about wisdom and faith. And really, also sketching a picture, which uh, Proverbs does, because I'm reading it right now. Proverbs even talks about if you want to be whole and healthy, you need wisdom. James is illustrating that same thing. He doesn't want fractured people, people who are hypocritical, people who are double-minded. He wants us to be whole people. We're going to be in, the chap- in chapter 4 today, but I wanted to end. I wanted to, to, I wanted to end. I'm already done. <laughs> God bless you all. Enjoy your Sunday. I wanted to, sorry, I wanted to uh, reread how chapter 3 ends before we go into 4, because in my mind, as you're reading, context is almost everything. Second only to authorial intent, I was an English major. If you want to know what that means, ask me later. The end of chapter 3 talks about wisdom and calls us all to the necessity of having wisdom. And I'm telling you, if you're a parent right now, we were having a conversation last night about how parenting just cooks our noodle every day. I'm telling you, I'm going to the book, I'm going to the book of Proverbs because if there is anything I need right now other than patience, it would be wisdom. James hits wisdom pretty hard, and he says, wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit impartial, we also talked about that in the book of James, and sincere. Verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace 
reap a harvest of righteousness. I feel like we could just like sit on that verse for a while because I don't know about you, but when you think about, man, what do I really need from the Lord? I need to know that he loves me absolutely, but in order to like function through my day, I'm making decisions every five seconds lately. It feels like it's that time of the year. Calendar decisions, what are my kids going to do? How are we going to handle this? Who's going to carpool? How am I going to eat? How many times am I going to go to the grocery store every week? As we go through chapter four today, what I want you to remember is that James reads more like the book of Proverbs. Yes, there are promises from God. Yes, there are really good illustrations for our daily life. But it doesn't read like a chronological letter that maybe like really is easy to illustrate or outline. There are seven themes that run through the book of James, and we're going to pull out a couple of them. Some of them we're going to repeat because we've already talked about them this, this summer. So James 4, we're going to start at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? That's why I looked at psychology today. I wanted to compare what the Bible said and what, what, what uh, culture says today. James says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Um, I've been praying a lot about this sermon this week because these aren't really fun words to stand before our friends and family and to talk about. Uh, but I have heard some people say, you know what, we just need to know what the Bible says. So I'm going to try today to just try to echo what the Bible says, all right? James asks the question, why do we fight? And it comes down to our desires. I think a lot of the times in my experience, I think about what I want or my expectations, which I think really at the end of the day are desires. And James talks about when we desire certain things, we can desire them so much that we kill for them. Now, obviously, sometimes war, murder, that happens, okay? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he also said that if we hate one another, we are killing them. So when we don't get what we want, when we don't like what we hear, when, I don't know, fill in the blank experience, we go there often, don't we? We blame someone, we start hating them. On some level, we can slander them or, I don't know, and we start killing them. Or, in some cases, people actually do destroy someone else's life. And when we get what we desire, when we want what we desire, sometimes we want it just for ourselves. I was driving through North Mankato, I think that was yesterday. No, I was running. And there's a place called Indulge. And I think you can get your nails done. I'm sorry if anyone goes there, and I'm sorry if you own that business and you're watching. But I was just thinking, like, having a place called Indulge, it was all of these things that none of us really need, but they're fun, right? I think it was like nails and eyebrows. Um, I don't remember what else, but it was something like that. And when that's all that you're doing is indulging, when that's all that you're doing is doing that, doing things or getting things for yourself, James is saying, red flag. How are we feeling so far? Super great. Glad you came to church. Let's go to verse 5. Or do you think scripture says without reason, 
that he, meaning God, jealously longs for the spirit that God has caused to dwell in us. I've looked at this verse in about, oh, maybe 10 translations this week, and it's a little confusing. All right, we talk about translations a decent amount, and I think it's very important because the original is the original, and we have it from a translation, okay? And they probably did the best they could, but human beings translated the scriptures, okay? This translation, what I think, what I've gotten out of it, is that God desires so strongly for the Spirit of God to be within you, that he is jealous. The word actually can mean lust. Not in a creepy way, okay? But like that chocolate brownie that I had last night for dessert, oh man, I could lust after another one. He desires so strongly to live inside of you that there is God is God, okay? Not us. But we are created in the image of God. And so our emotions came from somewhere. And somehow God in his holiness, I believe, has some of these emotions. And we just struggle to find the words for them. God desires for the spirit to dwell in us. It also is interesting. It says, do you think the scripture says without reason? Do you think we're just wasting time here with the Bible? It's a call to believe what the word says. Verse 6 says, but God gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, another call to read your Bible. This is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. That's a quote from the book of Proverbs. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. To me, this section is like a heart check. It's going to the doctor today. Maybe you're not going to like what the doctor tells you. (laughs) Maybe there's going to be a test that comes back, not the way you're hoping. But man, you're so glad you found out about it early. I want you to hear all of these words based on the context, which is God longs for his spirit to dwell in you. God loves you. God is waiting at the door, waiting for you to come home. God desires, he's jealous when you pick the world over God. He's just like waiting. He's excited. He loves you. It says that if we submit to God, he is, if we come to God, he's going to come near to us. It says that he gives more grace. And it also says that he wants us to be humble. Do we really believe that God wants to live in us? Not just near me, not just around me, not just leading me, you know, God before you, God beside you, God behind you. No, actually he is in me. So there is nowhere I can go, there's nothing I can do that he separates himself from me. God lives in me. Do we believe that God has enough grace for us? Grace upon grace. It doesn't wear out. You can't use it up. There's no limit. There's nothing you can do short of turning away from him and saying, no thanks. There's nothing you can do. It's not going to run out. He gives more grace. How much? More. 
How much? Well, more. That's what it says. But it tells us to not be proud, to not think that we know better, to not think the world has something for us that God doesn't. We oppose God when we reject the ways that God has laid out for us. When we take up the ways of the world, and can I say, and I'm going to judge the world right now, the world is all about yourself. I mean, you go to Hobby Lobby and you can see, like, let your light shine. You've got what you need. Oprah, just find its strength within you. Sorry, I'm calling out people left and right today. Man, I'm making a lot of enemies. But do you know what it is? It's those, like, you can do this. Actually, you might not be able to, but God through you can the world is all about you, and guess what? God is about you too, but like in a way that's not going to destroy you or make it all about you. God does not want us to be prideful because we need something outside ourselves. I don't have it. I'm going to wear out. At some point, I am not going to have what I need. Or you're not going to have it for me. It says submit to God and resist the enemy. I think that order is important. If you try to resist the enemy on your own, I don't think that that works. I think you've got to go back to the prideful part and work on that. Resist the enemy and then draw near to God. It's hard to do that if we think we don't need God. Or if there are areas of our life that we think, actually, I got this part, God. I, I just, I, I'll figure that part out on my own. But I really like this other stuff that you have for me. And then there's this maybe hard word, depending on how you feel, about your faith, but it talks about washing your hands, calls us sinners. We've also been called adulterous people. Thanks, James. Where's all the, like, brother and sister language? He, like, used that up, I think, in the first three chapters. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Stop laughing. Mourn. Stop being joyful and get gloomy. But why? Because sometimes, y'all, especially in the church, we got to deal with the crap that we have laid out. We need to deal with the ways that I have issues and I need to deal with them. It is appropriate sometimes to wail over our sin, to lament for our corporate sin, things that we've done wrong, but also the things that I have done wrong myself. Don't pass over the areas of your life. In all the planning you're going to do this fall, can you like pencil in your journal or your calendar, deal with my crap? I guarantee your family will appreciate it, your neighbors will love you, your coworkers, your teachers. The theme, I think, in that section really is about humility, driving us towards acknowledging that we are not king, God is. Which leads us then to verse 11. Brothers and sisters, he's being nice again, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, I got to be honest. This one's the hardest part for me to say out loud because if you spend any time with me, I am judgmental, critical. I will go through a store and ask who buys these things. I will walk through campus and say, why is that girl's shirt so short? Why are they wearing mom jeans with holes in them? They look like I did in the 90s. Why are they wearing matching scrunchies again? We did that already. 
And that's just like the tip of the iceberg. Don't even get me started on maybe some other areas, okay? So for me to read this out, out loud to you just is sort of laughable. I kind of pride myself on pointing out things, being sarcastic, and laughing about things. Oh, and it's just, you know, there's a part where it's like can be fun and whatever. And then there's just this deeply offensive, I am questioning the image of God that he has placed in someone else, deeply divisive, unhelpful, ungodly. It's just not right. It says don't judge, just don't. Let God be the judge. It's God's job. I was talking with someone recently, and we were talking about a very sensitive topic, and she was like, you know, I've struggled with, what do I think about this, and how do I do this? And then she said, you know, it just struck me one day. It's not my job to judge those people. And it was so freeing. That has really reverberated in my mind lately after I spoke with her about that. Now, again, I want you to remind, to remind you, these are brothers and sisters. This is someone like this week coming, setting Brian and me and down, and saying, you know, this is happening, and I think maybe, uh, Gosh, I, I wish that this were happening instead. We have relational, like, bank money with this person. For them to come along, there was no judgment. It was, a, it was a word. You know, it was an accountability. It was appropriate. Judging, I think we all know what it feels like to be judged. And we know, I think, when we're doing it for others. Mother Teresa has a wonderful quote. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. It's hard to judge someone and love them at the same time. It's hard when we're loving them to be judgmental. There are certain people, man, I have no problem loving them. And then there are other people, I don't even want to, like, be in the same room with them. Why is that? It's because I'm probably judging them, and I'm, like, moving them over here and separating myself from them. James takes kind of it feels like maybe a right turn or a random uh, what's the word, tangent here, but I think it really has to do with, again, the judgmental, prideful spirit that can sometimes happen with us. So verse 13, he says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to do this, or we're going to go to that city, or spend a year there, carry on business and make some money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. I mean, James doesn't pull any punches, right? I spend a lot of time doing calendars because I bullet journal. I think I've talked about this before. So I literally like write out the days and whatever. And so I'm through March. Praise the Lord. March of next year, which seems ridiculous, but that's what I'm doing. And I have a tendency to control my anxiety in the fall by planning. And I don't know, maybe I need to at the, at the top of every page say, if the Lord wills it. When you make plans, are we so prideful to say, this is what's going to happen. This is the plan. And then when it doesn't happen, we get mad. I think that that's connected to the pride, the control, all of the ways that we can again acknowledge, wait, God is in charge of my life. I am actually not. Verse 17 says, do the right thing. If you know to do the right thing and you're not doing it, it's a sin. It just seems very straightforward. So what do we do? What are the right things? A few. There are a lot in here, okay? Draw near to God. He wants to live in you. 
not just give you a ticket for heaven. I mean, that's sort of boring. You want a ticket? I don't know. Go to the carnival. If you want to have a relationship with someone, that's what God is interested in. It says that if you draw near to him, he's going to draw near to you. And who is this God? He promises to give you what you need. See chapter 1. If you don't have wisdom, pray for it. He can give us what we need. He wants to be our friend. Enemy with God or friendship with God. Those are the options. He longs to live in us through the Spirit. He gives grace and more grace and more grace. This is the God who again wants to draw near to us. It talks about making our hearts pure. It, he also says that he will exalt us. That's another sermon. And it says that God will rescue us. So, put in your calendar, deal with my own crap. How about, what if we like stopped watching the news, social media, and spent all that time reading the Bible instead? What if we stopped looking around, oh, what are you doing wrong? And instead, maybe spent some time weeping over what I am doing wrong. What if we asked for things so it would benefit us? Oh, man, I would really love to make more money so that I can do this, in, you know, so we can go on vacation. I hope we can get more so that our pantry is fuller and I get to eat out more. It also talks about not being double-minded. And I don't know what it looks like for you, but for me, there are just certain practices I have that I know, okay, I am being single-minded about Jesus. When I'm in the car, I'm thinking about how could I use my time? When I'm sitting with my children and I just want to go to sleep, what does it look like for me to embrace them and do what they want to do for a minute? You know, there are those certain like self-checks when you know. How can we be more singly-minded when it comes to Jesus? Okay, that's self-work. Self-work, do it. Put it on your calendar if the Lord wills it. I'm pretty sure he will. Psychology today, in regards to conflict, they actually had some very interesting recommendations. Number one, redefine your neighbor. I swear that is what it says. <laughs> I'll give you the website if you want to see it. Redefine your neighbor. It literally says make friends with people who are different than you. And I'm talking about in the church. What if you hung out with someone who really lived differently and loved Jesus? I just met some wonderful international students yesterday. I guarantee you they'll be different than you, and some of them will be Christians. Find a believer who's different than you. Figure out, like, wow, okay, how do I love this person? And they're very different than I am, but we agree on Jesus. Number two, psychology says, develop curiosity. Does that sound like humility? Asking questions? Number three, look for shared values. What would it look like if we talked about what we got along about, what we agreed upon, instead of all the things we disagree on? That's what psychology today says. I think it's also what Jesus talked about. I don't know if I've completely figured out chapter four, okay? It was a little, like, I felt like it was a little bit all over the place. There's a lot in there. You can always go home and reread it yourself. But this is what I think, if I had to summarize James 4, this is what I got to, okay? God loves you. God knows better than you do. Let's humble ourselves before God and one another. Amen? Amen.